Section 52 of A Popular History of France, Volume 5. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 5, by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 45. Louis XIV, His Wars and His Reverses. Part 2. Louis XIV had just done a deed which destroyed the last faint hopes of peace. King James II was dying at Saint-Germain, and the king went to see him. The sick man opened his eyes for a moment when he was told that the king was there. Memoire de Danjou, page 192. And closed them again immediately. The king told him that he had come to assure him that he might die in peace as regarded the Prince of Wales, and that he would recognize him as King of England, Ireland, and Scotland. All the English who were in the room fell upon their knees and cried, quote, God save the king. End quote. James II expired a week later, on the 16th of September, 1701, saying to his son as his last advice, quote, I am about to leave this world, which has been to me nothing but a sea of tempests and storms. The Omnipotent has thought right to visit me with great afflictions. Serve him with all your heart, and never place the crown of England in the balance with your eternal salvation. End quote. James II was justified in giving his son this supreme advice, the solitary ray of greatness in his life and in his soul had proceeded from his religious faith, and his unwavering resolution to remain loyal to it at any price and at any risk. Quote, On returning to Marly, says Saint-Simon, the king told the whole court what he had just done. There was nothing but acclamations and praises. It was a fine field for them, but reflections, too, were not less prompt, if they were less public. The king still flattered himself that he would hinder Holland and England, the former of which was so completely dependent, from breaking with him in favour of the House of Austria. He relied upon that to terminate before long the war in Italy, as well as the whole affair of the succession in Spain and its vast dependencies, which the emperor could not dispute with his own forces only, or even with those of the empire. Nothing, therefore, could be more incompatible with this position, and with the solemn recognition he had given at the Peace of Ruysvik as the Prince of Orange as King of England. It was to hurt him personally in the most sensitive spot, all England with him and Holland into the bargain, without giving the Prince of Wales, by recognition, any solid support in his own case." William III was at table in his castle at Deeren in Holland, when he received this news. He did not utter a word, but he coloured, crushed his hat over his head, and could not command his countenance. The Earl of Manchester, English ambassador, left Paris without taking leave of the king otherwise than by this note to M. Torcy. Quote, Sir, the king my master, being informed that his most Christian majesty has recognized another king of Great Britain, does not consider that his dignity and his service will permit him to any longer keep an ambassador at the court of the king your master, and he has sent me orders to withdraw at once, of which I do myself the honor to advertise you by this note. Quote, All the English, says Torcy in his memoir, unanimously regarded as a mortal affront on the part of France, that she should pretend to arrogate to herself the right of giving them a king, to the prejudice of him whom they had themselves invited and recognized for many years past. Voltaire declares in the Siècle de Louis XIV that M. de Torcy attributed the recognition of the Prince of Wales by Louis XIV to the influence of Madame de Maintenon, who was touched by the tears of the Queen, Mary of Modena. Quote, he had not, he said, inserted the fact in his memoir, because he did not think it to his master's honour that two women should have made him change a resolution to the contrary taken in his counsel. Perhaps the deplorable state of William III's health, and the inclination supposed to be felt by Princess Anne of Denmark to restore the Stuarts to the throne, since she herself had lost the Duke of Gloucester, 
the last survivor of her seventeen children, might have influenced the unfortunate resolution of Louis the Fourteenth. His kingly magnanimity and illusions might have bound him to support James the Second, dethroned and fugitive, but no obligation of that sort existed in the case of a prince who had left England at his nurse's breast, and who had grown up in exile. In the Atelier of Racine, or Jayada, invokes upon the impious queen, quote, that spirit of infatuation and error, the fatal avant-courier of the fall of kings. The recognition of the Prince of Wales as King of England was, in the case of Louis the Fourteenth, the most indisputable token of that fatal blindness. William the Third had paid dear for the honour of being called to the throne of England. More than once he had been on the point of abandoning the ungrateful nation which so ill requited his great services. He had thought of returning to live in the midst of his Hollanders, affectionately attached to his family as well as to his person. The insult of the King of France restored to his already dying adversary all the popularity he had lost. When William returned from Holland to open a new Parliament on the 10th of January, 1702, manifestations of sympathy were lavished upon him on all sides of the house. Quote, I have no doubt, said he, that the late proceedings of his most Christian majesty, and the dangers which threaten all the powers of Europe, have excited your most lively resentment. All the world have their eyes fixed upon England. There is still time. She may save her religion and her liberty, but let her profit by every moment, let her arm by land and sea, let her lend her allies all the assistance in her power, and swear to show her enemies, the foes of her religion, her liberty, her government, and the king of her choice, all the hatred they deserve." This speech, more impassioned than the utterances of William the Third generally were, met with an eager echo from his people. The Houses voted a levy of forty thousand sailors and fifty thousand soldiers. Holland had promised ninety thousand men, but the health of the King of England went on declining. He had fallen from his horse on the 4th of March, and broken his collar-bone. This accident hastened the progress of the malady which was pulling him down. When his friend Keppel, whom he had made Earl of Albemarle, returned on the 18th of March from Holland, William received him with these words, quote, I am drawing towards my end. end he had received the consolations of religion from the bishops, and had communicated with great self-possession. He scarcely spoke now, and breathed with difficulty. Quote, Can this last long? he asked the physician, who made a sign in the negative. He had sent for the Earl of Portland, Bentinick, his oldest and most faithful friend. When he arrived, the king took his hand, and held it between both his own upon his heart. Thus he remained for a few moments. Then he yielded up his great spirit to God on the 19th, or 8th, of March, 1702, at eight in the morning. He was not yet fifty-two. In a greater degree, perhaps, than any other period, the eighteenth century was rich in men of the first order. But never did more of the spirit of policy, never did loftier and broader views, never did steadier courage animate and sustain a weaker body than in the case of William of Orange. Saviour of Holland at the age of twenty-two in the war against Louis the Fourteenth, protector of the liberties of England against the tyranny of James the Second, defender of the independence of the European states against the unbridled ambition of the King of France, he became the head of Europe by the proper and free ascendancy of his genius. Cold and reserved, more capable of feeling than of testifying sympathy, often ill, always unfortunate in war, he managed to make his will triumph in England, despite Jacobite plots and the jealous suspicions of the English parliaments. In Holland, despite the constant efforts of the Republican and Aristocratic Party, in Europe, despite envy and the waverings of the Allied sovereigns. 
intrepid, spite of his bad health, to the extent of being ready, if need were, to die in the last ditch, of indomitable obstinacy in his resolutions, and of rare ability in the manipulation of affairs, he was one of those who are born masters of men, no matter what may at the outset be their condition and their destiny. In vain had Cromwell required of Holland the abolition of the Stadtholderat in the House of Nassau, in vain had John Van Witt obtained the voting of the perpetual edict. William of Orange lived and died Stadtholder of Holland, and king of that England which had wanted to close against him forever the approaches to the throne in his own native country. When God has created a man to play a part and hold a place in this world, all efforts and all counsels to the contrary are but so many stalks of straw under his feet. William of Orange at his death had accomplished his work. Europe had risen against Louis the Fourteenth. The campaigns of 1702 and 1703 presented an alternation of successes and reverses favorable, on the whole, to France. Marshal Villeroy had failed in Italy against Prince Eugène. He was superseded by the Duke of Vendôme, grandson of Henry IV and captor of Barcelona, indolent, debauched, free in tone and in conduct, but able, bold, beloved by the soldiers, and strongly supported at court. Catina had returned to France, and went to Versailles at the commencement of the year 1702. Quote, M. de Chamillard had told him the day before, from the king, that his majesty had resolved to give him the command of the army in Germany. He excused himself for some time from accepting this employment. The king ended by saying, Now we are in a position for you to explain to me, and open your heart about all that took place in Italy during the last campaign. The marshal answered, Sir, those things are all past. The details I could give you thereof would be of no good to the service of your majesty, and would serve merely, perhaps, to keep up eternal heart-burnings and so I entreat you to be pleased to let me preserve a profound silence as to all that. I will only justify myself, sir, by thinking how I may serve you still better, if I can, in Germany than I did in Italy. Worn out and disgusted, Catina failed in Germany as he had in Italy. He took his retirement, and never left his castle of saint Gratien any more. It was the Marquis of Villars, lately ambassador at Vienna, who defeated the imperialists at Friedlingen on the 14th of August, 1702. A month later Talard retook the town of Landau. The perfidious manoeuvres of the Duke of Savoy had just come to light. The king ordered Vendôme to disarm the five thousand Piedmontese who were serving in his army. That operation effected, the prince sent Victor Amadeo this note, written by Louis XIV's own hand, quote, Sir, as religion, honour, and your own signature count for nothing between us, I send my cousin, the Duke of Vendôme, to explain to you my wishes. He will give you twenty-four hours to decide. End quote. The mind of the Duke of Savoy was made up. From this day forth, the father of the Duchess of Burgundy took rank amongst the declared enemies of France and Spain. Whilst Louis the Fourteenth was facing Europe in coalition against him with generals of the Second and Third Order, the Allies were discovering in the Duke of Marlborough a worthy rival of Prince Eugène. A covetous and able courtier, openly disgraced by William the Third in consequence of his perfidious intrigues with the court of Saint-Germain, he had found his fortune suddenly retrieved by the accession of Queen Anne, over whom his wife had for a long time held the sway of a haughty and powerful favourite. The campaigns of 1702 and 1703 had shown him to be a prudent and a bold soldier, fertile in resources and novel conceptions, and those had earned him the thanks of Parliament and the title of Duke. The campaign of 1704 established his glory upon the misfortunes of France. Marshals Tallard and Marsin were commanding in Germany together with the Elector of Bavaria. The emperor, threatened with a fresh insurrection in Hungary, recalled Prince Eugène from Italy. Marlborough effected a junction with him by a rapid march, which Marshal Villeroy would fain have hindered, but to no purpose. 
on the 13th of August, 1704, the hostile armies met between Blenheim and Hochstedt, near the Danube. The forces were about equal, but on the French side the councils were divided, the various corps acted independently. Talard sustained single-handed the attack of the English and the Dutch, commanded by Marlborough. He was made prisoner, his son was killed at his side. The cavalry, having lost their leader and being pressed by the enemy, took to flight in the direction of the Danube. Many officers and soldiers perished in the river. The slaughter was awful. Marseille and the elector, who had repulsed five successive charges of Prince Eugène, succeeded in effecting their retreat. But the electorates of Bavaria and Cologne were lost. Landau was recovered by the Allies after a siege of two months. The French army recrossed the Rhine. Elsass was uncovered, and Germany evacuated. In Spain the English had just made themselves master of Gibraltar. Quote, this shows clearly, sir, wrote Talard to Chamillard after the defeat, what is the effect of such diversity of counsel, which makes public all that one intends to do, and it is a severe lesson never to have more than one man at the head of an army. It is a great misfortune to have to deal with a prince of such a temper as the elector of Bavaria. Villars was of the same opinion. It had been his fate in the campaign of 1703 to come to open loggerheads with the elector. Quote, the king's army will march to-morrow, as I have had the honour to tell your highness, he had declared. Quote, At these words, says Villars, the blood mounted to his face. He threw his hat and wig on the table in a rage. I commanded, said he, the emperor's army in conjunction with the Duke of Lorraine. He was a tolerably great general, and he never treated me in this manner. The Duke of Lorraine, answered I, was a great prince and a great general, but for myself I am responsible to the king for his army, and I will not expose it to destruction through the evil counsel so obstinately persisted in. Thereupon I went out of the room. Complete swaggerer as he was, Villars had more wits and resolution than the majority of the generals left to Louis the Fourteenth. but in 1704 he was occupied in putting down the insurrection of the Camissards in the south of France. Neither Talard nor Marsin had been able to impose their will upon the elector. In 1705, Villars succeeded in checking the movement of Marlborough on Lothringen and Champagne. Quote, he flattered himself he would swallow me like a grain of salt, wrote the marshal. The English fell back, hampered in their adventurous plans by the prudence of the Hollanders, controlled from a distance by the grand pensionary Heinsius. The imperialists were threatening Alsace, the weather was fearful, letters had been written to Chamillard to say that the inundations alone would be enough to prevent the enemy from investing Fort Louis. Quote, there is nothing so nice as a map, replied Villars. With a little green and blue, one puts under water all that one wishes, but a general who goes and examines it, as I have done, finds in diverse places distances of a mile where these little rivers, which are supposed to inundate the country, are quite snug in their natural bed larger than usual, but not enough to hinder the enemy in any way in the world from making bridges." Fort Louis was surrounded, and Villars found himself obliged to retire upon Strasbourg, whence he protected Alsace during the whole campaign of 1706. End of section 52